0: Your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Barnes Lizzie Haynes, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Brian Fry, and joining me today are my good friends and co-hosts, Lizzie Haynes. How are you doing, Lizzie?
1: I am doing great. Excited to be here.
0: And Dustin Marlborough, How are you doing, bud?
2: <laughs> Good evening. That's right. Dustin Marlborough from deep in the heart of Texas. Hello, everyone. I, I realized uh,
0: I've hosted once since I told you I was going to mispronounce it as something else every single time. And I did it correct once. And I'm like, oh, man, can I get a rerecord on that? I got to come up with something else.
2: When pronouncing it right is the mistake. That's where we are.
0: Right. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, uh, yeah, so we've got a fun one today. It's going to be My Dealer's Choice. Today we are going to be talking about Boondock Saints, but before we jump with, in with both feet on that, so school is back in session. What is a movie with a K through K-12 school setting that you just love? Dustin.
2: The first one that came to mind was Billy Madison.
1: Oh my okay. gosh, so
2: good. The thing is, like, I was like, is that the option? And I was thinking, well, we've covered some others on the show. We covered Stand and Deliver. We covered Coach Carter. We covered Breakfast Club. And I suppose Grease would be up there as far. But I mean, you got to think about what's about K through 12 range? What's about high school range? And what, which of those movies actually have anything to do with the high school experience? All those being said, I think it's still Billy Madison.
1: Billy Madison it really I mean, it's,
2: it's a great choice. <laughs>
1: I actually thought about that movie the other day, thinking about planning a party for one of my kids, and I was like, we're never going to be able – one of these days, if we ever have like a few money, we'll be able to throw, <laughs> yes.
0: yeah, it feels to throw awesome. one
1: of those like, Billy passed the first grade.
0: <laughs> Isn't that the goal though? It's all about that FU money. Like I joke about that with Jess all the time. I'm like, just just get me there, man. That John Goodman quote. I'm like, I I live that man.
1: (laughs) I have a girlfriend that door dashed a Diet Coke over to our neighborhood pool. I was like, wow, I didn't realize that you had a few money.
2: (laughs) Yeah, for real. (laughs) Just one kid.
0: Does that mean that I can say, well, I'll have a Coke then?
1: Yeah. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) That's right.
0: Oh, Lizzie, what's your uh, K through 12 movie of choice?
1: The first one that popped into my head. Now that I'm thinking about it, I'm almost mad at myself that Billy Madison didn't pop in, but School of Rock was the one that popped into oh, my yeah. head. But also, I I love that movie so much, and I still love the line where when he first shows up and he's like, guys, 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 listen, I'm I'm tired. I'm hungover. And one of the kids. Like, that means that you're drunk. He's like, no, 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 no. That means that I was <laughs> drunk yesterday. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: I just love that movie. It's so heartwarming and a perfect little school session. Excellent. Excellent. I love what Um, he
2: he gives the advice to the young vocalist to listen to the song before Any Color You Like on the Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Moon album saying, like, this is the kind of singing you can do. And I was like, I get that reference. (laughs)
1: Love
0: it. My knee jerk for this was going to be Kindergarten Cop, but- Mm But I actually, I want to go a different direction because it actually gave me an idea for an excellent next dealer's choice. And that is a movie called Charlie Bartlett.
2: Unfamiliar. Wait,
1: I've heard of that. Wait, no, no, no. That had the young guy from Alpha Dog in it, right? Yes, yes, yes. Okay.
0: It's one of the movies that made me fall with Anton Yelchin and Kat Denning. And I was just thinking that it's like, man, I love that movie. I bet no one. I bet no one's ever heard of it. Let's do that.
1: It's like a Ferris Bueller type of movie-ish.
0: Yeah, a, a modernized Ferris Bueller with a um, children playing doctor aspect to it.
1: Nice.
2: Can't wait for that dealer's choice. Would, would Ferris Buellers count as one of these? Because they're in school, but yeah. oh, they that's are the good one. specifically no, not. not. Yeah.
1: Any job? Well, yeah, but it's still, really uh,
0: like you could say dazed and confused.
2: You could, Oh, totally. Yeah.
0: Uh, all right, how about we introduce today's movie? <laughs> Boondock Saints, right.
2: 1999. Yeah. 1999
0: in Denmark, 2000 in the US. Uh, we, are, we have this movie starring Willem Dafoe, Sean Patrick Flannery, Norman Reedus, David Del Rocco, and Billy Connolly. This movie had a budget of $6 million, and it made a whopping $20,000. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Still not the lowest box office we've done on the show, I believe.
0: I know that their DVD sales were better based on some stats coming up. It didn't place in the box office. I didn't have a movie ahead of it. It didn't have a movie behind it. It was just that not watched number one that year was star wars episode one phantom menace i would re-watch this movie on repeat for an entire month uh, over that <laughs> its imdb rating is a 7.7 7. i know that doesn't make any sense compared to the other statistics i just gave you rotten tomatoes gave uh critics gave this a 29 percent, but the audience gave it a 91 so this this movie's for the people guys I mean, this is very much, and absolutely no awards. No awards whatsoever. This wasn't even on the radar for a bad award.
2: Yeah. I think it was only released on single digit amount of screens.
0: I don't doubt it. I got a hold of it way, I shouldn't say way later. I, it took a couple of years for me to get my hands on this. So uh, speaking of which, uh, Dustin, have you seen this movie
2: before? Yes. Yes. Not when it came out somewhere in between 99 and 2005. Well, clearly nobody saw it when it came out, so. Oh, well, yeah, <laughs> and neither did I. But I had seen this, we're going to say sophomore or junior year of high school. And, you know, you've got your group of friends. We had the one place we all hang out. Uh, we've got a couple of CRT TVs in there. Generally, we would be rewatching the same movies, but uh, Boondock Saints came in there and it got added to rotation. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not going to say we watched it to completion all the time but it was definitely just something that we would have on while we're getting up to our other shenanigans.
0: What were your initial viewing impressions, and what were your impressions this time around?
2: This kind of movie was really impactful to a 15-year-old boy. We talked a little bit about it with Hackers, but we definitely talked about it with The Matrix, which came out the same year, is the idea that it can kind of redefine what cool is. Um, Now, I had already been introduced to anti-hero-type characters, even if Hollywood hadn't fully taken off yet, so my dad was a fan of The Punisher. So I was a fan of The Punisher. So this kind of fit into that. The ideas of smoking and drinking weren't in my head yet. I wasn't that kind of kid. So there wasn't anything about that part of it. There really wasn't anything about the religious aspect of it. Really, I was just seeing just two badass mofos go do Bamf stuff. And that was cool enough. For revisiting it, what had happened was this kind of movie sparked a lot of people who became like boondock saints guys and i'm looking at both of you and i think you know that there are boondock saints guys out there and i was joking with lizzie that i'm pretty sure russell and i had a sweet mate back in 2007 that had a boondock saints poster on the wall and there are definitely boondock saints style guys that if you know enough of them will probably detract from what you think of the movie because of who these people are. And I tried to separate myself from that and give it a clean, unbiased viewing and a lot of stuff to pay attention to, even if you know what's happening, a lot of stuff to pay attention to. All of it good. We'll see. Stay tuned. Lizzie, have you seen this before?
1: Yes. So I saw this movie probably in the same time frame, maybe a few years later. I remember being in early college, so I might have been 19, maybe 20 at the oldest. and. I saw it, you know, at that particular point in time, I'm really just taking the movie at face value. So I want to say it was my brother that introduced me to it. So just like Dustin said, I'm watching two guys just – shoot them up. And that's really what I'm focusing on. So I'm like, oh, yeah. And like everybody loves this movie. So of course I'm like, yeah, I love this movie. And I never really (laughs) revisited it after that. But I mentioned this movie to Aaron and he was like, oh, yeah, I haven't seen the movie in forever. But like that was such a huge movie many years ago. So he and I were both really excited to watch it. And I have got to say, I know that this movie is for the people. I am not one of those people. <laughs> when, we, when we rewatched, we rewatched it. And I have many thoughts, many, many thoughts, but maybe I'm the one that's changed. You know, this movie has been constant since in 1999/2000, but I am not the same 19 or 20-year-old. So I had a completely different experience watching it this time around.
0: And I got to tell you, I probably had. I didn't watch this film in, I'm not sure if I've watched it since I moved to Spokane. So it had been a bit. And I got to agree with you guys on the, the early, the early viewing was this is an action movie. I didn't hate it this time around or anything, but I will say this. I put it very firmly under action comedy. Yeah. This watch around, because I'm like, I found myself laughing more than I ever had to it. Maybe it's just, again, a deeper look with an eye for a podcast. But I remember being like, I used to think this was a super serious movie and it's not at all. And I think that that's the difference of 20 year old me watching it versus 40 year old me watching it is like, I'm really looking at it as this is almost slapstick in a way. There are aspects of this that are, that are almost three stooges level.
2: Yeah, I agree with you. And I don't got to say, I think Troy Duffy took it seriously.
1: Yes. Yeah, I was just going to say that. I was like, I don't know if Joy Duffy would agree with you. I think based on his documentary, I think he takes himself pretty seriously.
2: But, but I would jump in with you and say that if you go into viewing this and you treat it as something that isn't taking itself so seriously, I think your enjoyment can only go up.
0: I think that's the 91%. Like The yes. audience score of 91% is I mean, you could take it as an action movie and still enjoy it. I'm not saying that that's wrong, even if you're 40. I'm just saying that <laughs> I think that if a movie gets an audience score of 91%, then that means that there are so many different ways you can watch and enjoy this film that you know, it lends itself to so many different points of view while watching it that then you get a 91 because we've watched some Oscar winners that I'm not sure have a 91 right. on, you know, yeah. on Yeah. On Very audience true. score. So it, it's just one of those things that maybe it just is that right, serendipitous connection of a lot of different pieces that no matter what age you are, you you get to watch it in a different way. Yeah, I, I got a completely different vibe off of it this time around than I did. I even watched the second one, which is whew, bad.
2: All same uh, day. But, Won't be doing that.
0: But way, again, they they lean really hard into the comedy aspect of it. It's like Troy Duffy realized how people watched the first film and then went off to make the film that that everybody saw his first film as, if that makes sense. Like he really leans heavily on comedy in the second one, more so than the violence.
2: Integrity aside, or the push for whatever he felt his art was, you got to make it to the 12th round somehow. And he adapted And that's good on him.
0: The other crazy thing is I've never really done a deep dive on the director. This is pretty much it for him.
2: (laughs) Right. Yeah. So
0: (laughs) we're going to have a very, very quick director discussion coming up here, folks. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, yeah, we're going to take a uh, quick advertising break here, folks. And then when we get back, we're going to ruin this movie for you. So if you have not watched Boondock Saints yet and you want to, hit pause, watch the movie, and come right back to us. Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation from the hits to the cult classics. We'll discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not so favorite movie moments too. It's the all 80s movies podcast now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening. All right, we are back and we've got Dustin here with an excellent plot summary. Dustin.
2: Murphy and Connor McManus are two Irish boys living the squalid dream of meat packing, hard drinking St. Paddy's Day in modern Boston. They learn that their local watering hole is going to be closed down by some Russian mobsters, and in coming face to face with some of them, light their butts on fire and send them packing, resulting in a hit job the next day that they survive. But the pieces are picked up by FBI agent Paul Smecker. The boys do not face charges as they are deemed acting in self-defense, but during their short stint in lockup, They are both awakened by a calling from God to kill evildoers. They outfit themselves the only way two young men would know how, emulating heroic movie stars, and kill a bunch of Russian mafiosos while also entangling their friend Rocco, who was a small fish in the crime pond, before learning that he was treated as disposable by his crime bosses. The three of them continue on their righteous spree, all while Smekker is on the case. Big-time crime boss Papa Joe Yacovetta feels the heat of these boys and brings out Il Duce, a mob hitman, to deal with these impending threats. Hmm, my notes say here that there was a firefight between the killers, resulting in the evidence that leads Smecker to determine the boys' identities. But a crisis of ethics and faith lead him to forego apprehension and instead land a helping hand believing their mission to destroy evil greater than the law of the land. The boys are caught breaking into Papa Joe's mansion, and Rocco is killed. Smecker fools the guards by dressing in drag and takes out two of them himself, before Il Duce gets the drop on him. Il Duce bests the Irishman as well, but reveals that he shares the same mission, a mission to destroy evil, and their plan culminates with Papa Joe being publicly killed in cold blood during his hearings. And the legend of the three saints permeates through the eastern seaboard, prompting media interviewees to claim that on the kids' walls, you're going to have Batman, Superman, and now the Boondock Saints.
0: With really cool
2: hand tattoos. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which they just had.
0: So yeah, if you think about the end of the 90s and the beginning of the 2000s and what tattoo culture was, I remember going to concerts in the early 2000s, and I think still to a certain degree, I'll go to a concert wearing jeans and a black t-shirt. I don't want to claim that this movie had anything to do with that uniform, but I remember one of the things I thought about this time around watching, is like, oh God, that was like my uniform for a while. Although I didn't have the nice three-quarter
2: length pea coats. Or the kind of the Euro trash haircut.
1: I was just going to mention the haircut. It's like this, you achieve it just by Going weeks upon weeks without washing your yeah, hair. shower. Then <laughs> you shower. just keep going.
2: I mean, trash in the most positive way. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Chain smoking cigarettes and you oh, know, right. all, all the things. Yes. Rampant
0: alcoholism. Rampant. Let's unpackage that. Dustin, is this a plausible plot?
2: Well, we have to make some assumptions that these two guys are tougher than your normal tough. They are shown as kind of get along with the guys, party animals in a way. They encounter some mob bosses. Now, they've got the numbers in that quick fight, but they're just two slim blokes. And I suppose we are given no indicators of any type of training. There's no sleeper agent that has kicked on for them to become fighters or excellent marksmen or anything. They're just driven. And what they're driven by is something that is either miraculous or supernatural, which is a calling from God, question mark. They certainly believe it. They're woken up at the same time from a very leaky police precinct. And they believe this is what they need to do. They are lucky in some of their success. So we're going to go with, and I'm, I'm not stealing this from Mythbusters but we're going to go with plausible it, 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 like it could have happened but we have to make some pretty big jumps to get into believable land
0: and one of the things on this watch around that really struck me was uh, to your point where did this training come from because they clearly know enough to know where the IRA arms dealer is, it kind of got me thinking about a line from the, the police interrogation scene where he goes, do you guys speak any other languages? And they roll off like three or four different ones. And they were That's like, right. why, why are you guys working on packing?" or where, you know, what are you guys doing? And he goes, Oh, our mother insisted on it. And I'm like, what else did your mother insist on?
2: Y- yeah.
0: And I, I would say that the, the growing up in South Boston piece and working at a meatpacking plant and, you know, going to the hardcore dive bar kind of places, I would say they are probably fairly tough gentlemen from the uh, hand-to-hand fighting standpoint.
1: Yeah, very fair.
2: They're tough enough.
0: Uh, Lizzie, retort.
1: I feel like this movie in general is slightly confused. It's like they don't really know exactly what direction that they want to go in in terms of the plot. I want to believe that Troy was made this movie in earnest. Like I think he has elements that he intended to be funny, but I think all in all, I imagine that he took this plot very seriously and he wanted the brothers to be betrayed seriously. With that in mind, movies that try to bring in this idea of being a vigilante in the name of God, it never ends up completely landing because at the end of the day, the general concept that we're going to take good and evil into our own hands, it's like the definition of the fall, you know, like with Adam and Eve, it's like justice is God's to serve. So whenever you we put it into a movie, it's always a nice idea, but it just like never lands because usually it's on the other side where it's not your protagonist, but your antagonist. And then they always kind of get their own come comeuppance. So it's tough when you see the protagonist doing it because you're like, I don't know. At some point, when are you going to have that? Like, I thought at one point that when they're in the church, at this point, they're going to have their grand epiphany of like, we're not doing this for God. Like, we're doing this for us because, you know, at first it seems like they're going to have this kind of nice moral agenda where they're going to pick people and be very – put in their due diligence about it. And then Rocco just suggests like, we'll just kill everybody. And I'm like, okay. like, okay, cool. Like, okay. (laughs) So I just – I feel like the movie had the intention of going in a serious direction, but I just think the execution was not there for me to be able to really get behind it. I wrote, Most vigilante films set up character development for the general purpose of adding texture to the characters so that when their time comes for them to break the law, you understand who they are and can identify with their sense of humanity. John Wick, Taken, Dark Knight, so-and-so, but this film has no moral compass. As they stated themselves, the Russians fell fell into their lap, and then they decide to just kill everyone. Meanwhile, outside of killing, they're scaring their supposed friend, killing cats and holding women at gunpoint. There are absolutely no redeeming qualities about these men, and therefore we're just watching two dudes on a killing spree. That, I think if we call a spade a spade, it'd be a lot easier to enjoy the movie, but I think packaging it as you're doing it for God it's a hard pill to swallow because it just doesn't equal out for me.
0: I'm also wondering how much they really believe it. I know there was that. I know the moment in the police station that you're talking about and whatnot, and they have the the overlying background piece, and then they're obviously heavily Catholic. But it's kind of one of those things where it's like, how deeply do they really believe in the miracle versus just have a a, a vibe that they're doing the right thing? Yes. I never read real heavily into the they believe it's. I think they believe it's their duty. I don't think they believe it's necessarily definitely from God, if that makes sense. Mm
1: Absolutely. I
0: know they try to like package it in the beginning with the the story about the the woman who was killed and everybody yes. just did nothing. I think that's really more where I took the the violence aspect of it is that they weren't willing to just sit around and do nothing anymore.
1: Yeah. But
0: then you have the fact that they are all in their early twenties and then they've got this bonehead friend who has more information than a twenty year old bonehead should have, and without any other vining compass they just decide to use him as their hit list. And, you know, there are times where, you know, I look at it and I'm like, ah, I, could, yeah, I could stand to watch Ron Jeremy get shot fairly. Sure. <laughs> so yeah. if the people that they are killing in this are people that I'm like, yeah, yeah, you can shoot. Yeah. That's fine. I totally get your point. But I do think that if they had, let's say this movie had been a little bit longer and they had been hit with uh, some moral moral ambiguity For what they were doing, let's say uh, the one psychopath's wife got shot or something like that. They had an instance where they had to rethink it. You know, maybe that would have added the depth that you're talking about where their mistakes were basically just harming themselves because it was three frat guys going on a killing. (laughs) Yes,
1: absolutely.
0: There was an age piece and I don't feel like it ever gets really refined until they meet their dad, which also admittedly was a bit ham handed. He's the one that, at that point, they have some form of direction, even though it's where they were headed. It's you know, instead of going off road on a dune buggy, he's got them on the interstate in a you know <laughs> far away speed limit. The Dune
2: Doc Saints. The Dune yeah. Dock Saints. Yeah,
1: dune dune Duck dune Duck. this isn't a calling from God. It's genetic. You know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and, which yeah, is it's fun just funny. your just
2: hitman there, like, family. <laughs> but, but again like, are descended from hitmen
1: i
0: almost think that it should have been a, like a prequel movie or a animated short or something beforehand before this yeah. movie ever came out it showed what else mom insisted on because clearly dad was in prison almost their entire lives and they've got all other yeah. language skills because mom insisted on it clearly mom insisted right. on way more than just that and that needed a little bit more fleshing out
1: I think I could really get behind the idea, like you said, if he they had this kind of moral struggle. So if they maybe showed them praying, or in a sense where you could actually see how religious they are, besides just the having the rosaries like dangle in the window, and yeah. the you know I, this feels right, but I don't know if it is like please guide me. Or at the very end, like you said, if they kind of realize, like I don't think that we're actually doing this for God. I think we're doing this for us. And even if they kind of shrug and we're like, well, you know, it feels right. So like, I guess let's just keep on doing it. Now we just at least aren't hiding it under the package that it's for God. It's just going to be for us. I'd be okay with that too. I just think that it's hard for me to wrap my brain around the idea of the killing spree in the name of God when it's like well the priest says it like absolutely perfectly of like you know God's laws are above our laws so it's justice is his to serve so i think if you if you really have that kind of relationship with God i don't think that you're going to get a message from him in the middle of the night that you need to just like wipe everybody out so i think it's like in my mind if they had just decided to do it for themselves, I think that would have made the ending feel much more satisfactory for me.
2: Brian, help me out here. What was the dealer's choice movie that you had us do? Frailty. Well, we learned something really important in frailty.
0: So are you saying that this is the same universe?
2: Oh, well, it's possible. (laughs) What I'm getting at is when you don't know, then there's the idea that you can discuss. All of a sudden, the levels of fanaticism or the levels of doing what God told you to do. Lizzie and I had a discussion with our guest a couple weeks ago, but the idea of of faith is the idea of something without evidence. And in in this movie, we are not actually shown if if God's talking to them. And we don't know exactly the strength of their convictions. They show up to church every once in a while.
0: It it had to have been every Sunday, because remember he says, this 8 a.m. church thing's got to go.
2: In the movie, they aren't in church very much we know that the characters yeah. go to church every week in the movie the church isn't that important so i'm going on all of this to say this mission of theirs i believe is one where they, they are just like it's a it's a perversion of the might make right and the even rocco says it's it's as they cut to the apartment of his girlfriend that they're crashing at the one where the cat explodes as they cut into that he's sitting there at the kitchen table and the scene starts with and you guys just decide who's evil it's it's almost a throwaway line but he's questioning yeah wait this is what you guys are doing you guys you guys decide who's evil and then you kill them and and like and he's kind of asking that for the audience like oh okay what do we know about these guys well with whatever supernatural language training savant techniques firearm training Sneaking. Well, we learned that they're not great at it. And that Brian, (laughs) that's where we get to the point is that they're not like super spies. They are not master infiltrators. They're just dudes. And so they kind of luck their way through some of this stuff. And that's where some of these questions, if the movie is tongue-in-cheek saying, like, yes, we get it, that it's not all quite fleshed out for you, that if you just take some of these assumptions, like the philosophers of old did, just take some assumptions and then move with it, that I think you can you can kind of let this movie rush over you without being caught up by all of the questions and especially like the the moral crossroads that like most of us would not cross
0: I, i don't disagree with any of that i think it's one of those things that you could probably go around in circles arguing plot points and plot holes to really piece together to support or detract from any point of view you take on this movie based on how this movie's been cut and pasted together in my opinion it feels like duffy basically said i'm gonna make a movie someone said hey i love your idea i'm gonna front this movie and then he came in and said i really like pulp fiction so i'm gonna make this a little linear linearly weird and yes. i really like you know usual suspects so i'm gonna make it you know twisty in a way and i like you know like he 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 brought experience and fandom from other things in to try to kind of cobble together something and although it didn't work critically he accidentally made a really entertaining movie for a lot of different people and and it even works in this hodgepodge age range too where it just for some reason now i'm not saying it has to be universally liked but back to what i said earlier when you have a ninety-one percent audience score—that's an accident. Like you, you accidentally made a movie that that many people want, <laughs> right. <liked. laughs> right? Like that, isn't that it? Like you accidentally yeah. made this thing that so many people could take something away from that they gave you a ninety-one percent Rotten Tomatoes score, which is is frankly, and Rotten Tomatoes, fairly unheard of.
2: I'm also—I think—I'm going to jump in here with Troy Duffy. Said, "Here are the things I think are cool." Yeah, and he made. It. Agreed. Yeah: And everybody that makes something that they like.
0: Like a dry erase board list..: yeah. Right. Yes. Truth and justice in Latin on hands.
2: Yes: yes. Right. Um, Intriguing interactions yeah. with female characters. erase. Um, That's right.) <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, but
0: cross-dressing <laughs> genius. Sherlock Holmes S- check mark. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes.:
2: yes. Absolutely.
0: like that.
2: Now we
1: need, we need a cop that is uh, like internalized homophobia.
0: Yeah. In, yeah. In the, uh, no. yeah, sorry. I, I probably could have done better on that. He probably wrote self-hating homosexual cross-dressing FBI agent, Sherlock Holmes. Yes. Boom. Yeah. Nailed it. Like nailed I could it. just see him turn around and be like, guys,
1: nailed it. So niche. Nailed it. For, for some of the other
2: things that ended no up on ever his cool list, board. on his cool whiteboard, Th- that's that one's inspired i i would say that that <laughs> one stands out as like wow that's not bad not bad troy so like he he made something and not everybody that chooses to like get in the director's chair is directing something that they think is cool uh it might be they see the art or they see the direction they see the like what the purpose of the movie but i i just want to say like this is good on him and and then for 10 years later ha- having the Interest enough to do a sequel, which I will never watch, but like it's great that you know drive that ends up in a ninety one percent tomato score, man, he's got to be happy, no matter what the you know, I i know that we've got the documentary on him, and uh I, I don't want to go too far into his own life, but that on its own should stand, and I think that's pretty neat
1: i I agree.
0: I'm going to do a really terrible impersonation right here, but I could even see him pitching that character to Willem Dafoe. And Willem Dafoe being like, "Oh yeah, I can <laughs> totally get behind that." You're <laughs> just like, "Yeah, yeah, you can. Yep,
1: yep, you yep.
0: you can." <laughs>
1: I really respect this movie and what it was able to achieve. I mean, it is a really interesting story in the sense that it did not do well initially and then having that humongous video sales. And I think it's super cool. It kind of feels like Blair Witch Project adjacent in that same way where, you know, you have this kind of like grassroots. I know obviously this had a way bigger budget and wasn't in the same ballpark. But I just think in general, how you're able to kind of have a movie that feels somewhat gorilla style and the fact that it's just like straight released and still get a 91% and be really considered a cult classic. So I really respect that about the movie. And I respect all of the people that have the posters in their wall of the movie. And <laughs> I am, I totally, I am always here to just embrace everybody. I'm not here to yuck anybody's yum, but I, uh, I, I think for, for me personally, it's probably not one I'll revisit.
0: I got two facts here, hopefully facts, Wikipedia facts, to drop on you. In its original run, the film only earned $30,471 at five theaters. That's right. So I, I feel like if you break down 30 grand at five theaters, that's actually not a bad grossing does that make sense like at 5 5 there are more than 5 theaters in spokane so if their whole run makes $30,000 just in spokane if you extrapolate that it would have done far better right
1: especially in the 90s when your tickets were like $3 a pop
0: yeah so so that's my that's my first thought here later it developed a cult following and grossed 50 million in domestic video sales.
1: Wild to me. I mean (laughs) good on them. Seriously. Like I'm that I have a lot of respect for that because that is pretty astronomical.
2: I'd like to take just a moment about the video sales and about something we've talked about a little bit, which is I think you all may have seen and listeners, perhaps you know people like this or you've seen this on the internet. The people that present all black with a, a black vest, a black tie black trench coat. They may be hoard- holding a katana. They're certainly wearing a fedora. These people, they see the boondock saints. And this is the message of it. They don't see the tongue in cheekness. They see that like, oh, these guys are so cool. These guys are like Troy Duffy. These guys are so cool. 91% is not good enough for those guys. Those guys, are. Oh, this is 100% this is the best movie ever made. Agreed. And now there's not very many movies where people can be devotees to it. This is a movie that bread devotees. And I don't know what the numbers of that is, but I would say that there are people who would put this as their number one movie of all time. And we do not cover many movies that people would say that's the number one movie I've ever seen. Do you guys see what I'm getting at here?
1: 100%. Yes. Yes, Yes. I do. Absolutely.
0: Like so many of my dealer's choices, look, there's a lot inherently difficult about choosing a Best movie of all time. Even if two people, or even a dozen people, or a hundred people uh, can basically agree on one, you know, let's say you know people just literally go in and vote for whatever it is, and some naturally rise to the top. I just have to say that intellectually, you have to know that this movie shouldn't be on that list. Right. <laughs> like, like it doesn't matter how much you love it. You know, again, yeah, I, I post a lot of movies that I personally love, but that I'm like, hey, man. I'm going to toss this out there. If Russ comes back and gives it one star and he was like, pride, that was absolute garbage. I'm not going to be shocked. You know what I mean? Like that just goes into it just because I find value in something doesn't mean somebody else does.
2: I got to tell you, Brian, before the show started, me and Lizzie were saying like, I cannot wait to hear how Brian talks about this movie because I I don't believe I introduced anything that would be considered new to you about your understanding of what this film's place when it came out, the people that like it. And I would, guess that like even the way that you talked about like the the action comedy of it like it it makes so much sense i did not believe that you were we'll call a devotee of this movie i think it fits into a category of things that you can and this should be seen as a compliment and one of the, the facets of the way that you can see a movie and why you're such an asset to the show is there's probably people that will scroll through our rmr podcast timeline They're going to say, they did the Boondock Saints, and then they're going to see your name on it and be like, well, let's hear what Brian has to say about Boondock Saints. Thank
0: you. I appreciate that greatly. Yes. The only other thing, I think I would have believed it more. Let's say they had cut the water dripping on the head, overarching, you know, godly voice speaking that ends up Mm -hmm. being kind of their dad's voice kind of piece. Let's say you eliminated that because I feel like a lot of the... God's telling me to do stuff is upbringing based. I think this was a nature versus nurture piece and it was heavily nurture on where they got to that point. But if you had told me without that section being there that they were doing it for the community, I think that would have been, a better sell. Agreed. Because their neighbors loved them, guys at the bar loved mm-hmm. them. You know what I mean? Like if you had said it was for the community, I feel like that would have been a stronger driving piece than and, and still had them go to church, still have the religious iconography everywhere. You can still do all that. Just make it less about, maybe we're having the same hallucination because we grew up under this corrupted ideology and have it more be like, Hey, let's do, you know, the groceries we help people carry. Well, that lady got jumped by a carjacker. Let's kill the guy that jumped her. Yep. And we're going to kind of lop that in the same thing as helping her carry her groceries to her illegal apartment.
1: I 100% agree. Cause I th- I think the idea of, of having like a direct line of communication with God is In the sense of him telling you to do things, I think in that respect, you'd consider yourself a prophet. And I think not to say that prophets were perfect because, you know, you read through the the Old Testament and they're all deeply flawed. But however, there is this deep yearning desire to please God. And kind of like we talked about church itself, you know, it's kind of a background context that they go to church on Sunday. But just their general behavior, it's hard to necessarily make a general statement about their moral compass because there's so, so little character development. But what we do have makes me feel like their character is so out of alignment with somebody that is genuinely concerned with making sure they're walking on a straight and narrow path. Yes. And so because of that, it feels like a contradiction. And so I think if they were to remove the God narrative out of this movie and do it like a Dark Knight style, you know, where everything that, that Bruce Wayne decided to do as Batman was for the good of Gotham City, you know, if it was the same way in that sense. I think this movie would be so much easier to digest, but I could not get past that juxtaposition of saying that, that they're doing it for God, yet just being totally out of alignment of somebody that you would kind of, because there's just no moral dilemma whatsoever from them. So that was a tough pill to, for me to swallow. It would have been a lot easier to take that out, I think.
0: I think just if i forced to really analyze how I've watched it in the past and I watch it now, I don't think I ever really gave it a God is telling me to do this credence. Like, I understand that one scene and where you guys are coming from on that scene, but I don't think I ever really gave that as my ideology on why they're doing this. But that's why I brought up the community aspect. There's the point in the very beginning where, you know, they walk up while the guy's preaching and then the one guest preacher is about to get up and yell at him for getting up. And they go around the guy and the one dude's like, no, you you need to sit down those guys can do whatever they want to. You get this idea from the very beginning that they are being allowed and encouraged to do what they're doing by all walks of life in this. And then that's further cemented cemented and detracted from by the news media interviewing different people. Oh yeah, man, kill them all. Where's my gun? And then you got a guy being like, no comment. And then a guy being like, no man, I can't believe you're saying this. They're just like killing people. So you do get the, the deepening of Rocco's like, so y'all just kill people, you know, yeah. it, mm-hmm. it is a message that, that's reiterating that that not everybody's on board with this. Some people are. And you're also given to to believe that the church is kind of in, in on it as well. So there's there's a lot to unpackage here. For a movie that I don't think is necessarily really credited with a great deal of depth, I feel like there, there are a lot of different angles you could take on this, that none of them are technically wrong. And I don't think any of them are really technically right either
2: is the thing about the churches and the communities backing unspoken because it's artfully unspoken, or is it unspoken because there wasn't enough attention from the filmmaker to make it seem unspoken? Or would it be worse and have it just be put in your face? It's not put in our face because there's a the lack of it. And is what we are craving here of adding more depth, was it absent, the things that we're talking about, absent as a choice? And Troy Duffy's saying like, yeah, of course you're supposed to think of it that way. Or was it absent because well I was kind of too busy thinking about the the jokes or the, the rope or the guns or the awful racist joke scene or whatever it is. If, if we've got time devoted to some of these other things that I want to say are you know failures in this movie, then as much as I want to give credit for the other things that might have been artfully done, or maybe they were just omissions, and we don't know. And even with that, there is an enjoyment to this. If the thing you must do is eliminate the idea that it is some kind of righteous task given directly from the Lord, or you look at it as the mission is righteous, but the bodies are not pure because these guys treat their bodies like trash and they aren't actually saints and they're not really role models at all.
0: Well, if you look up the history of most saints, it's pretty rocky territory. You you can take what you want from that. I definitely think that there are some artistic pieces of this. And I'm also not willing to throw the baby out with the bathwater with some of this stuff. Like you said, the, the crude joke scene. Is it unrealistic to have a bunch of Italian guys who are racist as you know what? In the mob? Absolutely not. I'd I'd say that's probably fairly realistic for how that went down.
2: Does it do a great job of painting them as people that you? there is no chance you're rooting for them? Like, they are absolutely like, oh, screw these guys.
1: Right. Yeah, after that scene, when he makes him continuously correct his vernacular, that was like, you're like, wow, I'm... As if you didn't already need a reason to dislike that guy that that solidifies it for you. So yeah, you're right.
0: So to push it that way is true. But I also think that, you know, this is one of those like Tarantino aficionado kind of things where I'm not going to say one guy gets to do it and another guy doesn't. (laughs) You know what I mean? You know, one guy does it in the name of art and it's art. Another guy does it and it's crude. So I think it's crude no matter what, but you know what I mean? Like, but
2: you can... Yeah, but I think I'll come back and say, well, the difference then is in execution.
1: Dustin, I completely agree with you. I think Quentin Tarantino knows. He's in on it. He understands the assignment, I think, in a way that Troy Duffy didn't. You know, Django Unchained or, or Pulp Fiction. And I mean, I cringe when I watch those movies because of, you know, all of the different crazy language. But I think in some way, shape or form, because the movie is camp it's clearly meant to be campy and to meant to be absorbed as this comedy with like little doses of action or the other way around really depending on how you want to look at it but I think with this movie I do believe that there are a lot of people that saw this movie and felt that it was campy and funny but I actually think the execution of it and the intent was to be serious and I think that that's how I absorbed it I think the execution is is what got me to I think Quentin Tarantino, he's a little bit more seasoned, I suppose. He got it right after sure. a couple tries.
0: Yeah, I don't disagree with any of that. I guess it, it, when I look at it through the lens of this is my first movie trying to compare it to like Reservoir Dogs or something, you could see where one career took off and another career didn't. So, you know, I I, I I completely agree with that. Yeah,
2: well and then we can go back and say like yes, the box office success wasn't there, but the cult success of this and the lingering dynasty, like legacy of this movie is one that, if we're talking about like legacy or cult status alone, is a heavyweight compared to to Academy Award winners. It's a heavyweight in terms of its cult following. And that's something really special.
0: It is. It is. I mean, you, you think of other movies that... I can't say similar to this, because I feel like this one really has its own little thing going on. But I think of other movies that you're like, wow, that shouldn't have worked, but it did. Stuff like Starship Troopers. But again, that always knew what it was. And I feel like this one really accidentally did
1: it. Yeah, I agree. You know, in Reservoir Dogs, you mentioned that. But thinking about it, the most memorable scene to me in that movie is, I think it's the opening scene where they discuss Madonna's Like a Virgin and they all like get in this big debate about it at the diner. That scene, even though it is long and seems meaningless, I think it serves the purpose of you get to know like each person's stance on that song. It kind of reveals a little bit of their character, and I think at one point it even kind of spoils who's the rat somewhat, like gives you like an Easter egg. It's like those little scenes that – play such a huge role in giving you some humanity to them I think if they had even added in a couple of those into this movie I think it could have done a really good job but you bring up a really great point that there's a lot of grace to be served here because it's you know he's kind of a one-hit wonder in one way and you have to imagine that if he kept on writing kept on directing perhaps he would evolve and a make it smoother yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, Lord knows if you gave me a camera, I mean, <laughs> I don't even want to know what would come out of it. So I think there's a level of grace that can certainly be extended to the choppiness of the story.
0: Yeah, there was definitely an idea here that had some good bones to it. So we're about to talk about the cast a little bit. And, and since we've, you know, kind of gone over some of the finer points, we're going to play a little game that goes along with this movie. It's going to be called Good Acting, Crappy Acting.
2: Hmm. All right.
0: <laughs> Dustin, Willem Dafoe as Paul Smecker.
2: Good acting.
0: Lizzie, Paul Smecker.
1: Great acting. Good acting. Absolutely.
0: We are three for three on that. Sean Patrick Flannery as Connor McManus. Dustin.
2: Crappy acting.
0: Lizzie.
1: Same. So bad.
0: <laughs> I'm going to go neutral on this one. There are some parts where I'm like, but then there's some parts where I'm like, all right. Norman Reedus, Dustin.
2: Crappy acting.
1: Bad acting.
0: I'm going to go back and we're going to talk about the top 10. Okay. people build in this at more length. I just wanted to kind of get a reasonable...
1: <laughs> All right, I time. actually
0: think Norman Reedus out of the two did the better job in this one. I know that's kind of what Lizzie was saying too, so I'm going to go <laughs> with a tentative good acting on that one. David Delarocco.
2: Good acting. Ugh, <laughs> Barf. <laughs> uh,
0: I actually like him in this too. In terms of the character he was trying to play, I think he understood the assignment.
1: He had a bad assignment. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Oh, oh, yeah. Okay. God, but well, that's what I'm trying to say, too, is that a lot of these guys are just wor- They're working within like a constraint of what they're supposed to do.
0: Dustin, Billy Connolly.
2: Not much of it. Good acting.
0: Okay. Lizzie? Good acting. Yeah, I agree. Again, small sample size. He didn't have to do much. Stand there and look menacing is about 100%. And he, he succeeds, especially with that bondage gun vest he has. Right. Uh, so, uh, David Ferry detective dolly
2: you're gonna have a hard time with me differentiating between dolly and duffy and newman and chaffee and langley and the only the only one that stands out is greenly and i'm gonna say even though he brings more to it i'm still gonna go with it's pretty stiff i'm gonna go crappy acting
1: you know i'm gonna go good acting with the detective
0: i am actually gonna go ahead and line item all the detectives good acting i i loved it i i loved all of the detectives (laughs) <laughs> uh, so just to run down it, Brian Mahoney and Bob Marley. Yes, his name is really Bob Marley. Plays yeah. Detective Greeny. Brian Mahoney plays Detective Duffy. Dustin, how about the other two Stooges? Uh,
2: so I think the Stooges do a, a, the job that they're supposed to do. Uh, so I'll, I'll go with uh, I'll go with good acting for the Stooge like uh, okay. cops.
1: I'm with you. I think we can line them all up and say good.
0: Yeah, there are a lot of trinities in this one. There's, there's you got the three detectives, you got the three gunmen. I feel like that's probably on purpose. All right, so let's talk a little bit about Willem Dafoe. Clearly the most named person in the film at the time of its release. Also the only one outside of Norman Reedus much later that had really much of a career. What did Willem Dafoe bring to this film?
1: I think he's the best part about this movie, quite frankly. I think he brings so much color to the character, they do more character development on him than anybody else in the entire film. So you really get, you feel like you know him better than anybody else. I, like we were saying earlier on the whiteboard, you know, he's this cop that has, you know, internalized homophobia. You know, he's laying in bed with someone that he's, we don't know if this is his long-term boyfriend or if this is just somebody that's his for a night we don't know any of those details but he wants to cuddle and you know he, he gives him a slur afterwards and so you can definitely tell that there's some kind of internalized homophobia going on there but he definitely is such a a layered character and i have got to say that i probably my favorite part about this entire movie was his constant interactions with all of the detectives you know he'd show up on scene and to i think it was Greenlee. I want to say, where when Greenlee tries to tell him what he believes- Like his working theory, yeah. Very, yes. He's like, you know what? I think I'm going to go take a coffee. And then that kind of becomes the running subplot throughout the entire movie. You know, he shows up in another scene. He's like, you know, I think I want a bagel with my coffee this time. And make sure onion bagel, cream cheese. I found his character to be the most likable and the one that I cared the most about And I have to imagine that Willem Dafoe himself deserves all of the credit for giving him so much depth.
0: What if I told you that I thought Willem Dafoe is the main character of this movie?
2: Yeah. Yeah. let Let me go one step further. These boondock saints are closer to the archetype of a henchman. They are enemies to be defeated, like in a spy movie or in an action movie. Their creed and the way that they live, like they're just... I see what you're saying with the idea of him being the main character. And I like thinking of the movie in that sense. I'm I'm thinking of, and I know not everybody loves the portrayal of uh, uh, the Da Vinci Code. Uh, people mm-hmm. don't love the portrayal mm-hmm. of the...
0: the Tom Hanks' is Robert Langdon.
2: Of it, the Robert Langdon in that movie. And people have issues with the author in general, like his writing style. But all that being said, the character of Silas in that movie, religious zealot style character.
0: And who doesn't love Paul Bettany?
2: And who doesn't love Paul Bettany, right? We don't have Paul Bettany here. We've got Flannery and Reedus. It sounded like I was going real far, but I, I totally get what you're saying about like, hey, this is kind of the story of Smecker on the case. And it's really interesting to focus on that instead of this pseudo divine mission. I've
0: already touched a couple times on how I think this relates to say a, Tw- a Quentin Tarantino movie. If you look at something like Pulp Fiction, where it has non-linear storytelling, it really is a story of different main characters, where this lacks a little bit of the depth that Tarantino brings to his, his things, just having two main bodies following in parallel, where something like Pulp Fiction has, what, like six? I really looked at it more as a paralleling main characters, as opposed to, these are the main guys, and this is the supporting dude who's trying to figure him out
2: i have to think that the idea of paul smecker is written well the the idea of him and how he in flashback is able to tell the story of what happened those vignettes as they happen that's credit to our director uh, there's a lot of things that add to that character being propped up and then if we get to like what lizzie was saying with his individual performance. Nobody smiles quite like Willem Dafoe does. And with the difference of the tone of his voice, it can either be something that you want to see or something you really do not want to see.
0: I think the Shershire cat.
2: Oh, wow. Yeah. Very
0: reasonable representation of Willem Dafoe smiling.
2: Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Yeah, the muscles in his face are doing work and it's lovely to see, but then uh, you have Uh, All right, he pops the music in, and he's listening to uh, operatic or classical music while he's on the crime scene. Now, he only does that once in the beginning, and then he listens to opera music later. Uh, To to dance to opera music, to move your hands in a directorial style, you cannot help but do it if you're an actor who is being told to listen to classical music. Not everybody pulls it off. He pulls it off. There is passion. Uh, Aside from when Rocco gets shot and killed, aside from that moment... Most of the passion and emotion that is shown in this movie comes from Defoe. Yeah. I think that's just to his credit. And so he was given a a role that was written with the opportunity to shine, and he takes it and runs with it.
1: Well said.
0: Lizzie, anything else you want to add on that?
1: No. I think you guys said it perfectly. I think he's the best part about this movie, in my opinion. I do really like the idea of rewatching it, perhaps maybe with the idea of <laughs> you know, with, with like, I just started with, uh-huh. with, with Will Dafoe as my protagonist. I think that that would probably be an interesting way to view. I probably would enjoy it a lot more.
0: The only other thing I'll add to it is uh, I, I would love to have been a fly on the wall to hear what the director said to start the initial scene. Of him doing the alleyway investigation. Because if he said, I want you to do exactly this, then it worked. But I like to pretend that he said something along the lines of, I need you to do something greatly unsettling to your standard detective Boston police officer. I need you to think whatever. Whatever they're doing, you are not only doing the antithesis, but it's cultured and it's so strange to them that they are just vastly unsettled. Yeah, and that that's what Willem Dafoe chose to do at that point.
2: There's a an aspect of his characterization that I think is a fumble, uh, which is uh, the 1999 portrayal of a gay professional. Is the the scene where he's in bed with his Partner, and he doesn't want to cuddle. Calls him the slur afterwards. It's not until that reveal that then you start to see that when he walks into a room and there's like a lieutenant at the door, that he'll give the lieutenant like a little once over. He's not like undressing him with the eyes, but now you, as an audience, are trained to notice it. You don't have to. Nowadays, we do a much better job of this. You don't have to so blatantly tell uh, audiences that a character is gay or not. And that he's gay doesn't matter to the plot of this movie, which I think is maybe inadvertently a wonderful stroke is that you don't, it doesn't factor in his sexual proclivities or his preferences. Uh, It does add to some scenes that you see. But aside from that, the dressing and drag there's no there's no depth written there as to whether that's important to that character or whether it's for a lark and that's uh that can be overblown in movies too and i'm I'm so glad it wasn't. That's where as much as I want to give Defoe credit for that role that that role is crafted pretty well now you could also get that like oh late nineties you could get the idea that like gay man huh, probably likes drag. We don't know enough about the man who wrote this character or the person who was in charge of developing this character. If that really mattered to them, I've mentioned before, I think it was Runaway Bride where we were talking about the uh, daughter being a lesbian and how they go to a lesbian club and how the kind of tougher Dom Butch aspect of the club and the aggressiveness of the lesbians in that movie are like, oh, this person doesn't know anything about lesbian culture. This is the closest they can get. And so this movie doesn't have any telltale symptoms or problems with his character being gay. And to be fair, not many 90s movies can pull that off well. So it's, once again, it's, an, it's more credit to, it's funny, the more we talk about it, the more credit I'm giving this Duffy guy. Again, it's
0: really hard. I actually haven't seen the documentary, but it's, it's hard for me to pick out what was genius and what was accident. Yeah, I think that there's actually a world where I'm completely wrong about the accidents you know, maybe there was just some, some clairvoyance and he just, he, he, he had a vision and what looks like happenstance might just be game. You know, I'm not here to to tell you that I'm just giving you my two cents on, on theories on this. Um, let's, let's take the brothers as a package here since we were pretty, I think we were pretty much, uh, sitting on not the best acting ever. Lizzie, tell me about Connor and Murphy McManus.
1: I, I've I've touched on this a little bit already, but I think in general, I don't know them. I think that was the part that was the hardest pill for me to swallow. I I don't know who they are at the end of the day. Like you've written out their resume on a piece of paper and kind of metaphorically speaking and delivered it to me so that I know the high level facts about them. But still, by the time this movie is over, I really don't have a grasp on... Who these people are and what's really important to them. So I think I have to imagine that some of that is due to Duffy in the sense of kind of like that Michael Bay syndrome where you want the explosion, but not necessarily a lot of it behind that. That he they he was trying to go for more of the more of like the shock and the awe factor rather than the character development. But also, I think a lot of it is just due in part to the acting. I just think the acting really isn't that strong. I don't think it's fair to completely lay that on Duffy's lap. I think they're both bad in different ways. (laughs) I think think that Sean is – he overacts, in my opinion. I think he just goes for it a little bit too much. I think when he tries to invoke – emotion it just comes out with him screaming rather than it actually feeling like he's giving me a moment inside of his soul you know I think in those moments where he was supposed to be emotional it really just came out with him just being loud and I think with Norman I think it was almost the exact opposite where I just think he was too quiet he was too timid and I just felt like I didn't he was just kind of riding on his brother's coattails a little bit
0: yeah, I definitely think that Flannery came across as the older brother. I'm assuming they're twins. You know, I always felt like he was trying to be the more stoic one, whereas Norman was the more... You know, he's the one that always wants to help. Like when Rocco was fighting the one guy, and Sean and Patrick Flannery's probably filling the dad role like he's got to do it himself when he's holding the guys back at the bar when Norman Reedus is fighting. He's going, hey, he can take care of himself. I do think that they have quirks that separate them on more than just appearance, but I do agree with you in terms of character building and trying to get to know either of them. It's never more glaring than the cheerfully lethal brothers that don't really get the attention that more main characters get to enjoy.
2: I think they were probably given some adjectives. They're like, no matter what, this is what you are all the time. You're brooding, you're cool, the way that Duffy used the word cool. And you are, I guess we'll say calculating at times. It's hard to use that word, but there's a sense that they share when they look at one another that almost seems like, I could believe that you guys are actually brothers. Right. But then there's a playground that they don't explore and they stay on the swings. They don't get to show the range.
0: You're absolutely right. And I feel like some of the playfulness that happens between them so much almost overrides the moment of genius, or not necessarily genius, but at least uh, higher understanding, like where they're trying to convince Rocco that his bosses knew that he wasn't walking out of there. They had that right away. As soon as they saw the gun, they were like, they screwed you. Mm -hmm. And he's not even getting it. He's like, no, that's not how things work. And then, you know, the other one comes downstairs like, oh, you're such a moron. And like, there's a brain there, but it's just that frat guy hijinks that just overrides the fact there actually is thought process going on.
2: When they're at the apartment of the girlfriend of the exploding cat, when they're over there, they're drinking and they're eating pizza and they are having fun. That almost took away from what these characters are supposed to be cuz if they are if i want to see them having fun and like having a laugh or gosh what do they say when Jafar is about to walk into the hotel room hallelujah and they just look at each other like hey we have to f with him right we ha- we have to It's like there's a playfulness that you know exists but i just don't think it's explored enough i mean the hour the movie's an hour 50 but i just think to myself i don't watch this movie and think wasted potential it's only when we talk about it that i think Man, there's so much more I could have wanted here with a table that was set and only two of five courses served.
0: Sure. Let's go with Rocco. Lizzie,
1: yuck. Yuck. Like, just all the yuck. Like, just horrible. I hated his character. I, to me, his character <laughs> ruined the movie. Like, it completely ruined yeah. it for me. Like, it negated their entire mission. Because like I said, they had in the beginning of this, we have this calling from God and we're going to exact justice and we're going to, you know, take our orders from God and, and do what he wants. And he's like, well, why don't you just like kill everybody? And he's like, okay. And it just, to me, it was like, pick a lane. And I think Rocco was the perfect example of Duffy not knowing which direction he wanted to go into because you take Rocco out of it and I think you have a much cleaner, concise plot. Still a lot of holes, but I think the movie just feels cleaner. Now on to the acting. Just sweaty try-hard. Like, all day long, I just couldn't handle it. Like, his character was the most obnoxious, deplorable, <laughs> just horrible human being. Like, I just, I, I really, like, I can't say enough horrible things about <laughs> this I just like I couldn't like in the (laughs) apartment. It's like just murdered her cat and you repay her by holding her a gunpoint and then just like literally screaming in her face. And then these men that are supposed to be God-fearing prophets like do nothing. And like where where is your oh my gosh, I just could not with rock. I am not a violent person, so therefore I get very sad good or bad when people die in a movie and i was of relieved <laughs> when he died i'm not gonna lie i was like okay
0: yeah
1: Ooh, that felt really good i feel like i, <laughs> I needed to
0: get that yeah i don't really disagree with any of that because he is a bad guy too like he is part of yeah. literally the system that they are he only gets the grace period of of knowing the two guys that are doing it and being friends with them. I think Rocco is the lead you astray character. Yeah. Like I get it that they're using him as like the phone book to kill people. And it really, it, it. I know we've referenced it negatively a few times. It's actually one of my favorite lines of the thing where he's like, I know names. I know phone numbers. We could kill everyone. And it's not that line that I like. It's Norman Reedus going, so what do you think? And Sean Patrick Fine is just like strangely all right with it. Yeah. I loved. That line, not because he said, yeah, let's do it. It's, I'm strangely all right with it. I I just thought that execution was particularly good on that one thing, because what he's saying is ludicrous. And I feel like the way he worded it was eloquent in a way that says, I shouldn't be, yet I am. I think that, that Rocco is really the problem. He's put there as more of a, this will lead you astray from what you're supposed to be doing. You're letting your friendship, your personal feelings get in the way of this thing you're trying to do. And yes. Rocco is that, is that distraction. Maybe distraction is the best way to put it. He's the devil on the shoulder.
2: Yes. While I don't necessarily reach the same levels of disdainment that Lizzie had, <laughs> there's something that came to mind, which was I used to write at a professional level. And one of the things that was hardest to do is when you are drafting and you come up with something that you might consider novel or you think is important to leave a message, then as you get through a second or third draft, you're holding on to it, but you aren't fleshing it out anymore. You're holding on to it, and then you realize your other sections are more important. Then you hold on to it, and you say, it's time for me to get rid of this, and it was a mistake for me to, to, to devote time to it, and then you cut bait and you say, all right, I can't focus on the propinquity of other population attractors when it comes to crime rates. I need to focus on something else, or at least that was my past life. And so you get rid of it and it's hard. And I think that Rocco's part or the way it was written needed to be altered or gotten rid of because it detracts. And he just didn't have the gumption to remove it, to be like, this isn't exactly how it needs to be. It's The people that watch this movie and the people that deign this movie very high on their list, the 91% raters, those people are probably like, yeah, Rocco, cool. We like the Rocco. He's frenetic and he's got all this stuff. But there's just, there's something there that I feel like he was probably great three drafts ago. His importance to this film or the way he's written in this film for me, it seems like it could have been edited away.
1: Excellently said. I agree.
0: Yeah, I don't think I have really retort to that. Outside of the fact that I do enjoy some of the insanity that happens between him and the brothers and some of the dialogue that comes from it. Maybe a revision as opposed to an outright scrap. Yeah. Or so, I agree that something probably does need to change there, but I also can't like, I can't let go of like some scenes that I'm like, all right, I really enjoyed this one scene where this happened.
2: Right. You know who I could see, and we're not at this part of the show yet, but I could see playing, if this movie were made today, I could see Jason Manzoukas playing Rocco and it being really, really fun. Sure. But it's, yeah, it's close to what we want. It's the difference between cinnamon and cinnamon sugar. You want one and the other one is very different. And so I think we're real close.
0: I really want to talk about the writing in this film. I do think some of the dialogue is brilliant, whether executed 100% cleverly or not. How did you guys feel about the writing?
1: to me, I think that the writing is really choppy for me. I think Troy needed to pick a lane a little bit. And I think if I were in a, like a meeting room with him and we were having a discussion, you know, maybe editing his script, I would say, listen, I think I am picking up what you're putting down that you want to create this. I know matrix hadn't existed yet, but I just, you know, this matrix X type of movie where you have these vigilantes that are wearing these cool black coats and exacting justice and you want this to feel like a cool movie and I want you to have that but right now that's not what we have so let's take out all the serious elements and just make this movie fun and I think a good example of that are a lot of those Jason Statham movies you know like yeah. And he's played a hitman several times and you know, all different kinds of movies that he's done. But I think taking the serious elements of these movies, you know, like already talking about the, the aspect of the calling from God and just a lot of the dialogue in general that feels, you know, like that very long joke, like a lot of the dialogue that just – Kind of left me scratching my head a little bit. So let's take out those serious elements and let's make this movie fun. And then I think you're fine that you're going to understand the assignment and achieve the goal that you want to achieve much better. But I think, Dustin, to your point, you said it so beautifully, talking about just the revisions and the rewrites. I think, I imagine that even though he might have wanted to do that there was so much that he didn't want to let go of it's like he wanted to create two different movies he wanted to create something that was fun and campy and Quentin Tarantino like and then something that was also super serious and thought provoking and i think he wanted to marry the two of them together and i just i don't think that it landed for me it did for yeah. 91% of rotten tomato users though so i mean he did something right
0: when we're talking about 91% and and even me bringing this up for the podcast i think this is a this is a movie that generates a lot of conversation about you know all the different things we've been talking about here and some things we'll probably think about later and wish we had said i think the dialogue further's the comedic aspects of this film i think it's probably Part B of his plan, like you were talking about, whereas a lot of the action sequences being part A. I think he needed a writer's room. I think he's the guy that comes out and says, Here is the overarching thing. I've got some great dialogue that I'm not willing to part ways with. It's like when you go and you talk to a realtor and they say, What are five things that are, you know, must haves for your house? And then we're going to figure it out. Well, he needed to bring those five things and whatever, and then have some people craft a more enriching script than just him going you know full bore in his own direction and I mean we see the the results of, of what happened and and a lot of people really liked it and and I'm not dismissing that at all but I am with you that this could have been fleshed out a lot
2: more either that and this is stuff we don't know or he had so many ideas fleshed out that he wasn't willing to get rid of them or listen to advice. I think about how when uh, Smecker is in the room with Connor and Murphy and they're having a really kind of polite conversation talking about like the languages they know. And I think he's kind of getting to the point where like, we're not going to charge you guys. Like, just answer the questions. And a cop barges in and says, boy, the media loves these two. What do you want to do, FBI agent? And 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 I go and I blink hard. I'm like, what the heck? Is the point of this, what a break of of procedure, What, what a way to give up any leverage that you may have had, how foolish of this cop to do this. And then I started to think, maybe there are a lot of foolish decisions that are part of the details to get from A to B to C to D to E to F. And it's possible that Troy came here with A to Z and everything fleshed out when you're right Brian it should have just been like you're the five things i really want and to if if the writers room is going to buy in to the cool things you want because you're paying them and so then you can get your alphabet more fully fleshed as opposed to i think i've got everything how it needs to be that's my presumption i like thinking about the way that this movie was and we're i'm not going to say doomed it's not doomed but this movie was like from its writing standpoint just there weren't enough voices being listened to.
0: Something I'm continuously curious about, having really kind of done a deep dive on trying to figure some things out. How did this movie get financed for $16 million and only get launched in five theaters?
2: I really don't know. There...
0: That disparity doesn't make sense to me.
2: Now, the movies are, is that correct? I mean, there's enough F bombs oh, yeah. that it must be, but. And and how important is it to the style of this movie? Probably pretty important, actually. The way that they talk and the way that they cuss.
0: I mean, it's South Boston. I don't think you get out. It's like The Departed, man. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you don't, you don't get out of you don't get out of one of these movies without a hefty use of the. You know, I mean, you look at the the you know the part in the hotel scene. What the effing f eff? f? Eh. And he's like, well, that certainly illustrates the diversity of the word.
2: Yes, and that's actually pretty pretty great little dialogue section right there. Um, but I'm I'm thinking about the release and i'm thinking about there was some kind of thing about it was like duffy's second or third try where it finally gets made this is just from some light reading i did two days ago but i I believe he also like him and his band he ended up renaming his band the boondock saints based on like his devotion to this like project of his there's a bunch of stuff about like the, the rights to it it seemingly had the turmoil of a much larger picture behind the scenes or in the details of the contracts. I'm going to be honest here. I lost interest in reading about it's unexplainable as to why it was such a limited release.
0: Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the cinematography of this, because there are some very interesting shots. Uh, Do you have any favorites or any ones that you're just like, wow, this was a complete miss?
1: I did think that they had some, some interesting shots, particularly in the beginning, but if the, if the, overall editing of the movie if the movie is going to be able to tie into the cinematography of it per se but I feel like there were definitely some parts of the movie that like the transitions didn't always jive with me but I think in general thinking about the general cinematography of the movie the scene that probably stands out the most to me and I'm probably spoiling a little bit of my superlative is like that initial scene with The Russians, when the Russians come to kind of exact their revenge and they when they, quote, fall into their lap. And you have that scene where he lifts up the toilet and he's getting ready to pull the toilet over. And there's constantly this this juxtaposition of going, the camera is looking down versus looking up. Mm -hmm. That caught my eye a lot. But I have to be honest, there wasn't that much outside of that that really caught my attention.
2: There's something also, uh, you mentioned the transitions. They fade to a second long fade to black five times in this yes. movie. And it was surprising. It was jarring when it happened. And I, it was almost like soap opera-esque or something. Aside from that, there's some creative camera work. And I want to actually reserve some of it for my superlatives. Uh, that, that There's some stuff that's done. I guess what I want to bring up in is more general is that, strangely enough, we, we mentioned the movie The Matrix came out the same year. There's some very advanced stuff done in The Matrix that we talked about when we covered on the show. There's some stuff that's pulled off in this movie that is not technologically advanced, but it is artfully advanced. Moving camera around, I'll give as an example, when in this sort of flashback style, the way that uh, our FBI agent is going back and retelling the stories especially once we get to the point in the movie where they start inserting Willem Dafoe into the action of it happening. Yes. And the movement between like from inside the garage, from outside the garage, from down beneath the hedge to above the hedge, to behind Billy Connolly, to looking at Billy Connolly from the saints themselves. There's a lot of good, busy, must have been in-depth work that is not relying on bullet time or not relying on really advanced techniques there is a reliance on slow mo in this movie but that's because troy duffy thinks slow mo is cool and that's fine
0: i agree i wouldn't the most stars for creativity but when it is creative it is really awesome like i really enjoyed the idea of stopping every action scene right at the climax of it and then telling it through the eyes of the detective who's trying to figure out what happened here like i really enjoyed the idea of saying oh oh here's a gun yes why didn't the gunfight happen and then it goes through defoe's like here's how it happened and i i really did enjoy that yes it's it's very tarantino-esque but it's also not something that specifically has been done by someone else either I thought that was really original. And then I also, you know, like you said, how he starts inserting himself into it. I still, like, I think I did a Google search at one point, like, has he ever said whether or not Willem Dafoe literally does fire his gun into the air in that suburban scene, you know? Yeah.
2: Or, or, or as he's retelling it, does he just do it yet yeah, to, to kind of make yeah. his point to the other detectives? Yeah. There was a
0: fire. <laughs> I'm wondering if there are just so many points where I can be like, God, I love that, that it overrode a part of my brain saying, oh, why do you do that?
2: There's enough candy in this movie to enjoy. And sometimes it will, it will prevent you from being overly critical, but sometimes it can be the positive, critical aspect of, wow, the choice to do it in this way. I'm going to say it was unique too. I don't think I know anything else that really does flashback quite like this. And flashback or retelling of stories, frame stories, whatever that is, uh, uh, Boondock Saints and Memento are, are find themselves in, in like, that's good company when it comes to unique ways of doing flashback stories. Right.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think, Brian, you one of the, I think one of the first podcasts that you and I had co-hosted together was was my dealer's choice. Dustin, you were also on it for first Wives Club. And I think you were on, if, if I'm correct, I think you were on the side of like I liked it. I understood why a lot of people like it, but there's just certain elements that I can't get past in order to enjoy the movie. And I think it's so easy to be forgiving. When the subject matter of the movie you genuinely enjoy and can get sure. behind, then I think when that's done, then you can just be super forgiving of everything else and suspend your disbelief. But when it isn't well like when you're not the target audience, you just oh, yeah. those flaws stand out so brightly to you that it's really, really hard to see past them, and so I'm now in that on that side of the chair
0: and I get that here's the thing one of the things when and i'm I'll be interested. I think this might have been my first true miss on my goal for Dealer's Choice. I think everybody's seen this. I usually try to go for getting the most people who haven't seen a movie. And I think almost, I'm pretty sure Chad and Russ have seen it too. So I think I I struck out on this one in in that capacity. This is not a cookie cutter. It is very much a male-centric movie in every way it looks for a very specific audience. And yeah, I don't blame you at all because I get it. I have to look at every movie that I recommend and say, Brian, you have to re- recommend a movie for Lizzie, just Lizzie. I'd be like, oh yeah, Boondock. No, crazy. That would be insane. So yes, I get it. I guess it's, but the long-winded thing is I, I totally understand.
2: Yeah, This has also been a pretty fun year of us throwing some odd punches at each other with our dealer's choices. Some things that were like, whoa, we were not providing like, hey, this is one of my favorite movies. We're providing stuff that's like, this is interesting. And I want you guys to join this interesting discussion with me. Uh, th- and it's been good. We're talking about like crime guy who does something good for the community. Hey, two months ago, we did King in New York. That's what that was. And King of New York isn't as entertaining as Boondock Saints is. There's sometimes that the things we're asking for find themselves, well, actually that movie exists, but it, you, you may not rank it that high because it's not, the, it doesn't have the same panache or whatever you want to say it. Uh, this has been like a kind of a special year for the round table.
0: Let's do a real quick. Is there anything you guys want to talk about in terms of like wardrobe, makeup, special effects? stunts I think the soundtrack probably bears a little discussion
2: you know speaking of some of the things that like we uh, attribute to this movie or like the, the way that we went in we all had seen it before or at least aware of it there was something that was a little strange to me which I know and I enjoyed the choir aspect of the music it added a somber note it added a pious note to like some of the church style scenes but I guess I don't know where I got so confused or so like misinformed, but I was really putting like the dropkick Murphys and uh, some of that like modern Irish rock into my mindset with this movie. And it doesn't have that at all. It has more of a Irish jig or kind of that kind of folky music in it as opposed to modern Irish. So I don't know where it was somewhere in the last 24 years that I conflated those two things. But uh, I would say the soundtrack of this movie was actually like quite traditional which was i'm going to say when i noticed it i was like yeah i think i would have prefer i would i would not have preferred it with more rock especially rock of the late 90s early 2000s that would have made this slightly cringier for me
0: well even the rock that they use in this it's it's all very instrumental it's all very non soundtracky it's more film score and yeah i think that this kind of movie needed that i think it would have been less If they had tried to, you know, toss, uh, uh, shipping up to Boston didn't exist. (laughs) Right. uh, You know, if they tried to toss in some like flogging Molly or, or something like that, I think it it probably would have lessened it, cheapened it a little bit. Yeah. I don't really have any qualms with it. I don't think that outside of the intro song, I don't think that there's anything in it that really stands out. There's that one kind of industrial Rocky music that they use during the the firing sequences, yeah. And really, I think that's the only other music soundscape of this that stands out to me outside of the opening.
2: Well, on that point, what's best to do is just to kind of keep the music in this movie internal, because if you're going to compare it to like the Crystal Method of like the The Matrix, uh, you're going to lose ten out of ten times. I didn't find anything detracting.
0: How about we uh, hand out some superlatives? Let's Ready? Start. MVP, Dustin
2: Troy Duffy had an idea for what he wanted to show, and he did. Uh, was it polished? Not really. Was it compelling? Sure. Did it create the worst kind of fans? Unquestionably. But was <laughs> it a special movie that all others like it will forever be held up to as far as cult classics? I think so. It's a good on him. All right.
1: Lizzie. Nice. I put Willem Dafoe. I, for all the reasons why we've said before, I think that he makes this movie.
0: I also put Willem. Best Supporting Actor. Lizzie.
1: You know, I actually put Bob Marley. The whole just side plot of their banter together to me made the movie feel tolerable it felt like that just very needed inhale of oxygen that i so desperately needed throughout the movie so bob marley it is
0: i think that banter is one of the most unsung heroes of this movie i think that one of my favorite parts is the banter uh,
2: Dustin. Fun fact, Bob Marley, the actor's dad, did not know there was a singer named Bob Marley. Uh, my best supporting actor is Willem Dafoe. I mean, he's the best actor. I gave him, I had to give him that because I gave the MVP to the director. Uh, we all know how great Dafoe
0: was. Let's go with change one thing, Lizzie.
1: This is so hard. <laughs> I have to, I pick want to change one? all the I can things. only pick one. Um, no, I okay, in all seriousness, I think assuming that I can only quite literally change one thing, I would have loved if they just had some kind of self reflection moment where they realized that mm. this was for them, and then that hopefully would change the trajectory. Not necessarily change what they decide to do with that, but at least just help them kind of have that self awareness. And hopefully allow us to connect a little bit more to the characters that way.
2: Lizzie, I'm actually, I'm, I'm with you. I think that's, that's, that's really keen because uh, what you did uh, while you were talking is you, you hit your fist together. And yes. what we realized is our two brothers have zero conflict between themselves the entire movie. They're completely aligned in their mission. And so imagine if one of the brothers becomes Just more self-reflective. And, yeah. Okay, fine. About the rope. Uh, which ended up being very helpful and tied them together. Indeed, uh, no, but the idea that like, well, one of them could maybe be questioning the mission, and the other one could be, I don't know, led astray in some way. I see what you're getting at, and I, I see the potential there. That'd be cool.
0: Uh, I actually went with Ron Jeremy. I hate that guy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, he's so like gross. I, <laughs> I know. I know why he's in a so movie. Gross. I, I, I guess I get it. I just, uh, I, I want somebody more. Less him. I just, he's not even in it that much. I needed less him. So I went with uh, uh, Joe Vitarelli. He's just another, you know, just another mob guy, but uh, he's enjoyable in movies and it doesn't bother me the way that uh, uh, Ron Jeremy does. Best shot, Lizzie.
1: I kind of alluded to this a little bit already, but when one of the brothers frees himself from the toilet and he manages to carry the toilet, onto the roof. That's Connor. Connor. Yes. Thank you. I just liked that scene where now it's a down shot looking up and you can just see the toilet kind of etching right above the henchman's head. I had to look away. It was probably at that point of the movie. I was on the edge of my seat, like totally into it. Super excited to see what happened. So I still had so much hope at that point. So that was <laughs> the best shot. All right. Dustin.
2: When Smecker's recounting how the Saints got into the poker game. And it's his retelling specifically of the point when Rocco tases the girlfriend or the wife uh, when they're trying to get into that game. And what he does is he tells Redis and Rocco and uh, Flannery, he tells them to freeze. He, he has to tell them off screen, I just need you guys to freeze because then we're going to move the camera in and we're going to focus on Defoe. And they do it. Now, is it perfect? No. But you know that it's practical. It's not done with a, okay, we'll freeze the side of the camera digitally and then move it in. They just said, hey, we don't have a budget to do something super fancy. So, and they do this a couple of times. They do this as well when they're inside and the two guys have their guns facing forward and Defoe is just doing his finger guns with him, which is another like classic shot. But the one I really like is the one where they freeze outside and they move kind of underneath their outstretched arms. I was kind of blown away. That was performed extremely well.
0: I went with the upward angle shot of them falling through the roof.
1: Yes. And they're like mission impossible.
0: Yeah. And he goes, you get the two little commandos coming through the roof. That stuff doesn't happen. That's what you see (laughs) in bad television. Right. How it ties into the rope. I, I, I feel like. One of the things the movie does do a great job on is hammering one thing in that will be a constant source of amusement throughout the thing, whether it's Greenlee with every time he's wrong, he has to go get coffee and a bagel and like, it's this recurring thing. Them coming through the ceiling and just that that upward camera shot of the slow-mo of them going through and then wheeling around just that whole scenario working by accident. Was, was my favorite shot. Best scene. Dustin.
2: The final scene in the courtroom where they get to say all of their righteous stuff. We don't want you're sick. We don't want you're hungry. We're just here to punish you vile people. And daddy's there too. I think that's what, there was a storyboard. Like Troy Duffy like wanted that. And the camera's kind of rotating around them. They have their guns pointed at people, but we know that they're not going to shoot innocent people but they're, they're just kind of like Mexican standoff standing. It was, it was
0: suppression, suppression. It was
2: kind of like suppression. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I see that totally now, but the idea is like, uh, you know, Hey, everybody eyes forward, listen up. We're going to tell you what we're here to do. And that's great. And you know, that's what he wanted. Like that's what he wanted this to end with. I thought, Ah, that's wonderful. Is it ham-fisted like we mentioned before? I think so. But that's okay. I I, I like it. I like that he went for it. It's a, it's a kind of a perfect resolution of this movie. Lizzie?
1: I think it's the last time where Willem Dafoe's character is at a crime scene where he is reenacting everything. And it's really woven in where what is happening in real time, which is him reenacting how that has happened versus What has actually transpired between the brothers now is happening in tandem with one another and we're watching both happen at the same time. That was really cool. And I agree, like we've said before, that felt above a lot of other elements of this movie like that felt just like so sophisticated and such an awesome way of storytelling so i do i really tip my hat to to duffy on that for sure
0: and i am in agreement that was also my favorite scene part of it's because i like how additionally disheveled willem dafoe looks after each incident and (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to, to, to culminate with that, where he's like, his shirt's not even buttoned right, and his tie's all messed up, he's got his gun in the air, and, you know, and it just kind of, it goes to the, I think part of the, his frustration, the reason he's losing it so much by that fight is, he still doesn't understand what's going on, none of this matches anything anybody's doing, because it really is still just amateur hours yeah and it really and it, even with the culmination where he ends up dressing up in Dragon going to save them, which he doesn't even really end up saving them. they eluded you, you get the little commando guys coming in through the basement, and of course that didn't work. they're know?
2: immediately so, caught.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was, it was really angling all the time toward this eventual like, if anybody's actually ready for you, you you've got no shot, you know, so it's uh, yeah, I agree, and, and I love that scene. Wardrobe or makeup moment, Lizzie.
1: Willem in drag. I don't think that's just the best for me that, that it Hot. got. It was just, yeah, I mean, he's pretty man. <laughs> what can you say? But it just, that whole scene, I felt the energy coming off of that scene. So not only was it just interesting in the sense that it's the FBI agent in drag. So obviously I I'm, I'm imagine that doesn't happen every day, but I think that you can always tell when an actor is having fun. And that really just shines right, just almost just like a light underneath their skin. You can just feel that they're having fun with what they're doing. And I really felt that from his performance. And Draga, you could just tell he probably got such a kick out of it. And so that was a fun scene for me to watch as the detective, but also just knowing and loving Willem Dafoe. That was fun for me.
2: I could guess that he even like improvised the line. Joey Bevo sent me over.
1: (laughs) Yes. I mean, all we know, like the smooch might not have even been in the Oh my gosh. Yeah. Probably like the way he caresses with his hand and his very long press on nails. I mean, it was just like the whole thing was just great.
2: Dustin, (laughs) wardrobe of makeup. You reminded me how honestly throughout the movie, Defoe's hair is great. Defoe's hair is great throughout the movie. But Connolly's gun vest, it's oh, yeah. wonderful, uh, and I, I absolutely love it. But I, I generally know it's
0: not one guy with six guns. Yeah, and, and
2: he's like, oh, that'd be crazy." And that's what it is. Uh, Connolly's gun vest. Uh, but the second thing is, uh, I generally like to pair a best and a worst. Man, uh, he he really wanted to have Connolly smoke a cigar. But I think actors, aside from Clint Eastwood, who had the long sort of cigarillo like sticking all the way out having a fat cigar in your mouth doing anything is it makes it all so much worse and uh so like having that cigar while he's firing his guns and pulling from his cool vest holsters you could tell it's like painful like oh I don't want to have this in my mouth and um well, the vest was great. Having the cigar in his mouth was bad.
0: Listen, I'm just going to give a nod to it because it spawned probably an entire decade worth of people, and and really helped three quarter length pea coats sales, especially in Boston. Hey man, I had one. Yes. I had one for go, three years. I think I'm the only one that literally didn't do it, but I, I'm going to go with the the boondock saint look. I have to imagine that was very popular. I bought
2: mine in 2006 from Express Men.
1: Ooh back
0: i i really enjoy three quarter length coats but i've never had a peacoat like that so well we're gonna wrap this up with a best quote dustin best quote
2: hey greenly onion bagel cream cheese
1: that made me want a bagel really badly when that happened i'm a big bagel gal onion bagel
0: <laughs> lizzie best quote
1: i said this once before already but the priest says it the laws of god are higher than the laws of man i think that in general, is a great quote, but I think that also to go with my change one thing, that would have been an awesome quote to be a catalyst to some self-reflection. Or to
2: come back to, yeah.
1: Yes. If I were perhaps in the writer's room, you know, that's, that's how I would have done it.
2: I have
0: always tried to say this exactly like they said it, and it's taken me so much not to quote it a few times while we've been talking about it. But literally every chance that it's even reasonably acceptable to use in casual conversation. Name one thing you need a stupid (laughs) note for. I don't know what you need it for. You just always need it.
1: (laughs) It's a great Irish accent. I love
0: love that line. So like, I'll go camping and we'll be unpacking the car and I'll be like,
1: oh, name one thing you need a
0: stupid (laughs) rope for. I, I love it. It's it's just one of those. It's just one of those delicious pieces of this movie's dialogue that I really enjoyed. Even if you extend it just a little bit further and be like, okay, get your stupid rope, and he goes. Oh, is that right there, Rambo? <laughs> and he's holding up his knife yeah. by the point. Like the playoff certain characters sometimes is just great. Even when they're crawling through the vents and they're like, sweating my ass off carrying your stupid rope. It's just, it's one of those just gifts that keep on getting. We're flating the
2: and, whole movie. And
0: yeah, I just, I actually think that the rope might be my favorite part. of it. I can
1: get behind that.
0: Just the rope. Lizzie on a scale of zero to five. <laughs> How would you rate Moonlight? Okay, Saint? so
1: I am not going to give this movie a zero because I feel like that's not fair, but I am going to give it a one. <laughs> As I said before, I really respect what this movie was able to do, and I completely respect what it tried to be. But I think looking at it from a critical eye, it fell fell flat. And then I think also just coming at it from a personal. Stance is somebody who I really like action movies. I do. But I think that there's a formula, I think, to follow that just really includes making sure that I care about who I'm watching. And I think that without that, it's really hard for me to get behind just all of the bang, bang, bangs. So because of that, I'm going to give it a one. But in spite of that, I have to say I have had so much fun and I really really appreciate you guys being such a good sport while well, I just completely ripped this movie to shreds. <laughs> so, I I appreciate you guys so much.
0: Everybody has the uh I I was on the Breaking Away episode with Russell as as Chad Knight completely sunk his battleship. <laughs> so, um <laughs> I, I assure you that I, I'm taking this in far better humor. Oh, than I really about.
1: appreciate you being such a good support.
0: I thought Russ would never talk to us again after that, that oh, episode. No.
2: It's a special feeling <laughs> when you know what your rating is going to be and you know how you go into it. And then you've got an hour and a half to two hours to talk your way through it and have fun. Valentine's Day was one of the most fun episodes I'd ever done. And I it was a, extra fun because I knew I was sitting on that one in my back <laughs> pocket the whole time. <laughs> Uh, I'll jump in here. I'm giving Boondock Saints 2.5 stars. Um, I think there are some fantastic things that have emerged from our conversation or that emerged from this watch that I said, this is really wowing me. A rededication to taking a look at Defoe's character. I mentioned a, a gay professional, a gay man in the world and it not being the focus of anything. It's almost like a different type of test, like the Bechtel test, which this fails, but it's like, oh, d- do you have a gay character where the thing that's important about them is everything else except from their sexuality? That's pretty modern. Not a lot of movies in the 90s did that well. There is some of the idea about the people that really like the Boondock Saints as a movie, the Boondock Saints devotees, that factors into the score here. But I would say, uh, if I started right here at a three, There were some things that were unavoidable that knocked me down to 2.5, but all the things that make up that 2.5 are pretty charming. And there were some things, I mentioned the cinematography, that it deserves some credit there too. So I I was able to fill that 2.5 with some things that I thought were like worthy of record, we'll say. So uh, 2.5 stars for me.
0: This is the uh this is the first time I've ever really looked at this movie critically. Uh, I would be 100% lying if I say it didn't affect my overall perception of the film itself because I really did. Force myself to really look at some of its flaws and and have to really come to terms with that. Now, that being said, I you know, I this isn't just a dealer's choice because I wanted to tackle something weird and a little off brand. It's also because I like I'm kind of a homer with this. I saw it at the right time as a young adult. I quote parts of it all the time, like I said, even stuff that really isn't easy to quote in normal conversation. I really enjoy this mood. I I'm part of the 91%. I gave it 4 stars, but I it's a 4 stars that I don't expect anybody else to back me up yeah. on.
1: Hey, yeah, I had toys that was like, and I was like all gung-ho on my, on, That I think that was my last dealer's choice, Robin Williams toys. It's like, this was like a staple for me growing mm-hmm. up. But after listening to Dustin and Chad and like their critical opinion of it, I was like, you guys are actually like really right. I completely understand where you're coming from. So it's so... The fact is like, you love it. It's like that hocus pocus factor where if you grow up loving it, it's just like, it doesn't matter. All of the flaws, you just love it.
0: This is one of those films that I would never have the arrogance to attack someone for not liking this movie. Right.
1: We appreciate you for that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's not the kind of movie where you can be like, how dare you? (laughs) I mean, no, I, of course, like that's, that's valid entirely
2: there's a world of media surrounding movies in current reviews in flashback reviews in the plethora of podcasts you can almost be certain that anybody that's ever covered the boondock saints has covered it in a very particular way and that this this may be if i were to go on a limb this may be the most unique take on boondock saints that exists out there so listeners keep coming back who knows when we've got a spread from yep. one to four stars. Who knows what you can take from it.
1: That's right. Right.
0: You guys want to help me uh, select a movie for next time? Yes.
2: I am ready. I've got three options for you uh, to quote the movie Airplane. Now, Joey, do you like movies about gladiators? Option number one, Spartacus from 1960. The slave Spartacus survives brutal training as a gladiator and leads a violent revolt against the decadent Roman Republic as the ambitious Crassus seeks to gain power by crushing the uprising. Option number two, Gladiator, from 2000. A former Roman general sets out to exact revenge against the corrupt emperor who murdered his family and sent him into slavery. Or option three, Barabbas, from 1961. Governor Pontius Pilate gives the populace a choice to spare either Barabbas, a criminal, or Jesus, condemned as a heretic, from crucifixion. The masses chose Barabbas, and he is haunted by the image of Jesus for the rest of his life. Brian. Which one are we choosing?
0: I think I've got to go option two. We need to get our uh, our gladiator on. I here.
2: know someone who's gonna my be name, very happy with that.
0: My name is Maximus Decimus Brutus,
2: Commander. Of the Army <laughs> you of the just Army. said that. You, know, <laughs> you just said that, and the first thing that came to my head was, you killed my father. <laughs> Prepare <laughs> to die.
0: Prepare <laughs> <laughs> to die. It's a bad, bad, bad cadence for that. <laughs> All right, well, listen, thank you to all of you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. Subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. It's mostly audio only. Give us a like on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. Producing and providing for this podcast is fun, but not free. We invite you to support our show at our Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash movie roundtable forward slash any contribution is much appreciated and will go toward making the show better for you, the listeners. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Lizzie.
1: Keep the change, you filthy animal.